What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss history, mythology, philosophy, and how they bubble up into our popular culture. I am very, very stupendously bubbling out with wondrous magical excitement. Essence. Essence. I am here to channel the essence of Thra, and so proud to bring you this week's Dark Crystal podcast. It feels like a long time coming. This is a movie from 1982 that combines history, mythology, and philosophy, and the creation of its own uh, incredible and unique world. So I'm also very excited that we're doing this. Uh, You probably know, listeners, that Netflix just released the prequel series, Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. Tonight, we're going to talk about the original film from the 80s, which is also streaming on Netflix. So if you haven't seen the original movie yet now is the time catch up while you can uh and also check out dark crystal age of resistance because we loved it loved it loved it and we'll probably want to talk about that uh at some point as well but tonight we're going to keep most of our analysis to the original film and the world that it created yeah depending on how this goes and if you dear midnight myth listeners best podcast listeners in the world enjoy this episode we'll probably tackle the show. The show is not, um, you know, it's not barred from the conversation. We may mention it. Yeah. We're going to try to ground and focus everything and on we'll the original movie. And we'll keep it as spoiler free as possible for uh, Age of Resistance. Uh, well, yeah, if we talk about it, I'll probably spoil something. So I'm going to go ahead and say it's probably a good idea to have seen everything before listening to this. <laughs> okay, great. I, I will do my best All to right. not spoil it. Um, but no promises, listeners. But given, once I, the, given that it's a prequel, you know, we're in pretty good case. Yeah, we know how it's going to end and it's not pretty. Um, yeah, highly recommend watching the movie too before you jump into the Netflix show. I definitely think that is the right way to do it. Um, that being said, you could also do it in reverse. Watch the Netflix show, then see how it all ends in the movie. There's nothing wrong with that as well. Yeah, do you. All right, so it's time to roll up our sleeves and get into our marionettes, get into our Muppets, and talk about this wonderful, beautiful, strange, and bizarre, controversial, uh, dark movie about the Dark Crystal. Yet before we begin, Laurel, if people want to reach us on the pod, how can they reach us and support us? Oh gosh, so many ways. Uh, if you want to get into the conversation and join in with us, definitely hit us up on Twitter. We're at the Midnight Myth, or we're on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Plenty of places to find us on social media. Um, you can also head to our website, which is www.midnightmyth.com, for additional content. There, we've got blogs. You can learn all about our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, which is uh, a Derek and Steve going through each book in Stephen King's The Dark Tower series one by one. Hear me. Say true. Yes. Hear me well. 
Whatever, Say thank you, Sai. Whatever that means. It's all just, you know, phrases from the book that we're doing now called Wolves of the Kala. Wonderful. So, uh, yeah, they're working on another episode for you guys. We're doing one a month uh, for Wheel of Ka with the Dark Tower. So that is a really fun way to get a little extra content from Midnight Myth. Um, if you wanted to support us, if you wanted to help us continue to make this podcast for free and get more content to your ears, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find the link on our website. Uh, Patreon members can chip in as little as a dollar a month, $5 a month, or whatever you can spare. And each level is going to get you more and more perks or benefits for helping us out. So you'll get discounts on merch in our merch store, or you can get bonus episodes every month, tons of extra stuff. And it really helps us out. It really helps us cover our costs. Um, Also check out our merch store. We have tons of new shirts. We have tons of new totes, phone cases, stickers, anything you could possibly want for the Midnight Myth and the Wheel of Ka. Um, what am I forgetting? Anything? I think you hit everything. Okay, amazing. Uh, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Yes, Boom. Please. Thank you. Uh, make sure it's five stars. And hey, if you buy merch, <laughs> uh, tweet us a picture of you and your merch, and we're going to mention you on the pod. Yes, please. Yes, thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I'd like so many people... To tweet us, tweet at us pictures of merch that uh, I can't mention you on the pod because there's just so many. I want to be flooded with merch pictures. Anyway, um, let's start talking about The Dark Crystal. Now, the movie came out in 1982. For many of our listeners, you may have seen it as a child and haven't seen it lately as an adult. So we're going to do just a briefest of briefest recaps. The story takes place in a fantasy world called Thra. It is ruled by this uh, oligarchic imperial race called the Skeksis. I said it wrong, didn't I? The mm-hmm. Skeksis. Wow, it's a hard word for me to say. So they um, rule over it, and it is a desolate world, and they are a dying-out race. They have pretty much stripped it of its resources. And in it, they try to uh, gain power from this dark crystal, which has fragmented. There's another race of beings with four arms called Mystics, and they are sheltering Jen, the last of a race called Gelflings that's, that the Skeksis have systematically genocide and wiped out. When the master of the mystics dies, he gives the Gelfling Jen a task, which is to find the shard that broke off the dark crystal and to reunite it. And that will be the only way to heal the world. Otherwise, everyone and all life on this planet will be dead. On his journey, he meets the Agra, where he picks up the shard, a fantastic and interesting um, you know, bizarre puppet with this huge telescope kind of weird yeah, astrolabe kind of thing. Yeah, totally. And this world has three sons. And uh, he also encounters another Gelfling by the name of Kira, a female. And they end up infiltrating the, the, the tower where the Skeksis live. And he reunites the shard. While this happens, the mystics are traveling to the castle and are present when Jen reunites the shard into the dark crystal. And we find out that the mystics and the Skeksis, Skeksis, wow, are actually one race of pure energy that when the crystal shard fragmented from the dark crystal, uh, they split into two different beings. And because he has reunited the crystal, he has healed the land. They are now one being and they're going to continue to travel the cosmos and leave the planet of Thra to the Gelfling who it is should be their planet. And presumably uh, Jen and Kira are going to repopulate the Gelfling uh, species. Yeah. And what they say is we now leave you with the crystal of truth. You can remake the world in its light. So it is implied that the dark crystal has transformed or metamorphosed or gone back to its original state, which is this uh, crystal of truth. Well, well stated. Thank you. Yeah. Now, that's the brief recap. Let's talk a little analysis. I mean, a few things I just need to call out, some general points here. Wonderful. One, thank you, Jim Henson, for just having lived. And I am so grateful to have lived in the time of Jim Henson. The Dark Crystal as a film, as a movie, as a cult phenomenon would not exist without the brilliant and creative mind of Jim Henson. So I think it's worth calling that out. And his team, the Jim Henson Company and their creature shop that built this world, that filled it with these wonderful puppets and shot this 100% puppet movie. The amount of work that it must have taken to make this is staggering. 
And the movie is stunning. And I just have to say how humbled and grateful that I get to talk about this movie because a man like Jim Henson, who created the Muppets, wanted to tell a darker, rawler, more grittier fantasy epic. And he wanted to take his puppetry skills to the next level. And because The Dark Crystal existed, we also got The Labyrinth, another one of my favorite movies as a kid. Um, they directly correlate, and that just have to call that out. We also should call out that the art design, the creature design, was inspired by the illustrator, I'm blanking on his name again. Brian Froud. Thank you. So Jim Henson saw Brian Froud's artwork and was like, I need to bring this artwork to life with puppetry. And that's the sort of unification and idea that we got the Dark Crystal. Now, when it came out, the movie was not very well received. Um, I can remember when I first saw it, I loved it as a kid. And I went to one of my best friends and I might have been seven or eight. And I'm like, hey, have you seen this movie, The Dark Crystal? And he's like, no, my mom and dad say that it's a satanic movie. We're not allowed to watch it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because it's very occultish. And, and it was the 80s. It's the 80s, and there are these monsters worshiping a crystal, and it, it is very much uh, not a uh, Christian story in any way, shape, or form. And so, you know, so it was not well-received. There was backlash to it. People knew Jim Henson as the guy who did The Muppets. And Sesame Street. And Sesame Street. Yeah. As this kid-friendly. They're expecting a Jim Henson movie to be super kid-friendly friendly to be super positive and instead you have these gluttonous materialistic overlords you know murdering and killing and you've got uh, gelflings mind melding with each other and you've got these mystics just uh, doing this almost chant like song and a lot of parents did not take their kids to see it yeah it was it was not successful uh and you know, you mentioned how much effort and how much thought and how much uh, just creative energy went into this film. It took five years for them to make. Uh, just a massive effort on the part of everyone who was involved in creating the world of this movie. It took five years, and it was a deep passion project of both Brian Froud and Jim Henson and everybody working on it. And then it did very poorly. And I think that's a tragedy that in his lifetime, Jim Henson wasn't, you know, appreciated as the guy who made the dark crystal. He was only really appreciated as the guy who created the Muppets. But uh, there is an incredible beauty and poignancy, I think, to our generation growing up and getting greenlit at Netflix and being able to rejoice in the incredible richness of this world, tell new stories within it with the same technology that has just advanced and become more and more powerful since the time that the Dark Crystal came out. So there is a sort of bittersweet feeling that uh, you know we were able to resurrect this idea even though it was not well received in its time. Yeah, a few fun facts that we learned in researching for this podcast. Um, one, we got this from the Netflix documentary about the making of it, that Jim was unhappy with how the Gelflings moved. He didn't like their movements. And because of that, when they started doing the labyrinth, he chose for his heroes to be people instead yeah, of puppets. Right. So the reason there's humans in the labyrinth is because he didn't want to replicate he what he thought was bad movement on the point of the Gelflings. Um, another just interesting story about a documentary that is on YouTube about Jim Henson's life. You can all watch it. Yeah, it's called The World of Jim Henson. Which is a fantastic documentary about Jim Henson. There is a story that when he brought in, when the Dark Crystal was done being filmed, he did a screening for the movie executives who had put all the money into the movie. They sat and watched it. And once the movie was done, the executives didn't say a thing. They just stood up and got out meaning that they hated it and thought it was a bad movie and how much that actually hurt Jim Henson because this was his passion project. This was him breaking out of the pigeonhole that he was in of the Muppets and touching a darker part of his art artistry and, you know, like any artist doing something completely new and bold, the people that funneled the money to him hated it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a really tragic thing. I, I think there's something interesting in this idea that 
Uh, Jim didn't want to revisit these characters or these puppets that he created for the Gelfling because he was dissatisfied with them. And I think a huge part of that is because they are the most humanoid uh, puppets that I think Jim ever made. Um, and it delves into this kind of uncanny valley moment where they look enough like us, but not enough like us, that we're just a little unsettled by them. And the uh, kind of range of emotion that they were able to give was not satisfying to Jim, at least as a perfectionist. Uh, and so to see how much the, the technology has grown, to see how much we've been able to augment that in recent years is a debt of gratitude that we owe to Jim for creating the Gelfling in the first place and for thinking that we could make these semi-humanoid creatures that we just needed a little bit more time to get there. Um, that being said, my opinion, I think the Gelfling look amazing in the original Dark Crystal. Absolutely. Then again, I'm not Jim Henson. Right. I'm absolutely. not going to argue with him <laughs> saying that he was wrong. Yeah. But, and from my perspective, whenever I watched and when I first watched the Dark Crystal to the um, you know, dozens of times I've seen it since as an adult, um, I've always thought it was nothing but exceptional. And I've always been of the opinion it was Jim Henson's greatest artistic achievement. Um, in a career with nothing but artistic achievement, to me, that was the shining star. I think you're probably right about that. Um, and a, a huge part of that is uh, just in the depth of Thra, in the visual uh, appeal of it, in the fact that it has such a, uh, a rich history and mythology lore around it that feels... Uh, even though it's totally alien, it doesn't really resemble any other fantasy that had been made before it, but it feels accessible to us. It feels like we can step right into that world because it has so much texture, because it has so much richness. Um, yeah, and you know, well, so I, about that too, you know, I remember we were re-listening to our episodes about Tolkien and you were like way back in the day we did a two-parter on, yeah. on the Lord of the Rings. And you had mentioned so many times that there's nothing original about the Lord of the Rings. It was one of your kind of mantras yeah. that, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien didn't really invent these concepts and these ideas and these worlds. He borrowed. Man, Jim Henson did the exact opposite in Thra. He built, it is... And Brian Froud, yeah. yeah and Brian Froud, it is totally unique. There is nothing else like it in fantasy other than the prequel. And it is a very, very unique world that I think we should definitely start to pick apart. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and try to understand this world of the dark crystal. What is a, just a general question I'd like to throw out to you. What do you, what does the dark crystal symbolize to you in the movie? The actual dark crystal. The actual itself. dark crystal, not the, the movie, but yeah. the crystal that the, the Skeksis are worshiping. They're drawing life force from, and uh, that has darkened and is poisoning the world? That is a really great question because we also know at the end of the film that it has this kind of dual nature as the dark crystal and as the crystal of truth once it's been reunified. Uh, for me, the dark crystal, and I think a lot of this comes from... Uh, from a projection from the outside world, there is this uh, association of it with the kind of new agey ideas of crystal healing, that crystals can channel energy, whether you believe that or not. I don't necessarily believe that, but there is this idea that I think the story is working with that crystals can channel energy or power. Uh, and the dark crystal does channel energy from the suns and from the essence of living creatures. So I think there's that. I think there's also, and I'm not a geologist, but I think there's something important about crystal structure that needs to be explored uh, when talking about what the crystal represents. And that's that uh, any, any element or any material that has crystalline structure is something that grows toward that, is something that has this kind of fractal basis where it is a repetition of patterns that creates this idea that we see, this crystal. Uh, so for me, I think there's something about a part representing the whole uh, that is part of being a fractal as it repeats and creates a bigger and bigger image uh, that works its way into the dark crystal. I think that's the crystal itself and the movie as a whole works with this idea of uh, themes repeating, history repeating, 
parts being uh, reflections of a whole. Yeah, and also I think there you also touched on what I think is the central theme is the dual nature of, yes. of reality. Yeah. That there is two natures to the dark crystal. It was once one and became two. And now that there is a piece missing, there is a race of energy beings which were once one, then became two. I think it's telling that there is one Gelfling at the start of this who finds another Gelfling. So yeah. they go from one to two. One is male, the other is female. I think um, the what we're seeing symbolically in the Dark Crystal is that when the dual natures of reality are separated, when there's disharmony, that is when there is death. That is when there is lack of growth. Symbolized that there is literally nothing growing around the uh, the, the crystal castle. Yeah, it's a wasteland. It's a total wasteland, and you have to go very far away to find life, and that's the last little bastion of life where the mystics live. Right. And that the Skeksis and the mystics are one being, having been separated. The crystal goes dark when it gets fragmented, and it no longer is a crystal of truth. It is now a dark crystal, and once you bring it back together, once it's back in its light, it then becomes now the crystal of truth. Right, and that, I think, says something about the nature of truth, too, which is that there are multiple sides to it, right? So you have to be able to access it from every angle. You have to recognize it's very... Uh, uh, intricate structure and you can't blind yourself to an entire piece of it. You can't be a skexy and say, this is everything that I am. This is the entire crystal. When you know there's a shard missing and there is an entire half of yourself missing that you are ignoring. Same thing with the mystics. You can't be a mystic and be doing your rituals in a, uh, a remote island and not confront your skexy self. Right. And to me, the, the easiest stand in symbolically of what the dark crystal is, is that it is, uh, it is a divine being. It is a form of God. Yeah. Right. And it is what gives life. It's what gives light. It's what gives truth. And when it is in disharmony, that is when death happens, which I think comes to the philosophical core of the movie, which is new age philosophy. Right. And uh, Jim Henson was into New Age philosophy and was in particular in this movie was inspired by what's called the Seth materials. Now, usually when we delve into philosophy here on The Midnight Myth, it's something that I am very familiar with and have probably read, studied and written about in my past. This was all brand new to me. Yeah. And I'm really excited to talk about it. And um, it gets weird. So the Seth materials were written by a woman by the name of Jane Roberts. She started this project in the 60s. And it started with her and her husband using a Ouija board. And they channeled this spirit that was giving her knowledge. Then she started going into trances and speaking this out loud, and her husband recorded them and then transcribed them to words and published them as books. Right. Now, the, uh, they claim, those that follow the way of the Seth materials, that it's the started, they started New Age philosophy. However, scholars really debate if that's true or not, whether they coined the term or whether it was the first New Age philosophy if you follow the way of Seth materials, you think it is. But if you study New Age philosophy, you're going to challenge that. Um, so she spoke to this energy being named Seth, who was imparting knowledge to her and imparting wisdom to her and claimed that, you know, humans. So humanity existed in phases and by talking to Seth, a new age was starting. Oh, okay. Wow. So this okay, was the yeah. new age now that we have the knowledge from Seth. So we've made contact. Yes. Yeah. Now, the to sum up the Seth materials um, pretty s simply, in the most simplest terms, there is a self. The self is part of God, or all that is, is what they say. They don't use the term God. They use the term all that is as a stand-in for God. But there is a divine essence to the universe in which the self is a part of. And the self is on its journey and will ultimately get reincarnated until it reunifies with all that is. So the idea is the self must reunify with its eternal essence and that everything, everything that is part of creation has this divinity within it and that reality 
is created by selves. So as we experience reality, we are creating reality simultaneously. So the very act of there being people and being selves is what makes the universe real. And in that comes the sort of core lesson of the the Seth materials, which is uh, the term you create your own reality. So if you believe, and which is a term that um, Jane Roberts first spoke. What? Really? Yeah. You create your own reality. Oh come my from, God. Comes from the Seth materials. This is amazing. And that's its most popular phrase. Yeah. So popular uh, that people often quote it, not realizing what they're quoting. Yeah. I've seen it used in discussions of like quantum theory. I've seen it so, I've seen it so far from new age philosophy. That's amazing. Yes. Go on. Yeah, so let me give you a pragmatic example. There is a state of things called sickness. And we define sickness as when you have a disease and that you are ill, and it is the disease that which makes you sick. To a new age, to someone that follows the way of the Seth materials, that you have described this condition called sickness, it comes from you, and because you say it is a thing separate from yourself, you have now created the reality of the disease. Well, you can simply unlearn that and say that the disease is me, and since it is me, I am no longer ill. Now, they say in the Seth materials that um, this isn't easy to do. It takes discipline and training and meditation. But the idea is that if you practice this philosophy really well, you can will yourself to be out of the state of illness, similar to poverty or wealth or excess or uh, lust. And you can see how that kind of paves the way in the future for the secret, which like relies on the rule of attraction, that your thoughts are going to create your future prosperity. Exactly right. And that you have to learn to control these things and these thoughts. Um, You know, there is no real state of death unless you imagine it to be so. But even then, you will eventually reincarnate until you end up becoming a being of energy. There are things like angels and demons in this, you know, you know, worldview um, philosophy, if you will. And we see this philosophy in practice in the dark crystal in a few very relevant ways. Well, one, there is a self, there is a pure being of energy, just like the being Seth in the original beings that fractured. And the when, or Skex, yeah. And when they fracture, they become the mystics and the Skexies. And uh, bringing them back whole, they become beings of pure energy as well. But we also see it in the way this world works. Everything is alive. Yes. Everything yeah. has a heart and a purpose in it. And when it is separated from its natural state, when it no longer sees itself as one big piece part of this world called Thra is when things like excess and lust and desire manifested in the Skeksis can rule and contaminate and overconsume until this world is dying out. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I think that's wonderful how there is this uh there is this energy within Thra that longs to be connected, that longs for everything to be tuned in to everything else that creates this incredibly uh, codependent ecosystem that when it's working, when everything is in balance, is extremely harmonious. But then you introduce this factor of the Orskex who are uh, you know, experimenting on the crystal, they split themselves, and then that radiates outward their materialism, their desire to uh, find eternal life, uh, then throws everything else out of balance and throws off this incredible unity among the uh, the creatures of Thra. Amazing. Just, yeah, just interesting things that I've learned about New Age philosophy is that it, uh, it really gained traction in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It came from the United Kingdom. I do believe Jane Roberts was British. Um, so it came from the United Kingdom, and it took hold in America during that time. And um, there is a lot to New Age philosophy. There's a lot of different forms and facets. Scholars who study religion tend to shy away from that term because it's so hard to define. 
People who practice new age philosophy typically don't say, I'm practicing new age philosophy. And I I would venture to say it does have a slightly negative connotation, at least here in the U.S. There is this sense that it's uh, pseudo-philosophy or pseudo-science or pseudo-whatever. And I'm not here to pass judgment on anybody's belief system. We don't do that at the Midnight Myth. But yeah, it does seem like if you were someone who practiced a philosophy or a worldview that is associated with that, you might... Uh, shy away from using that term. But it does create a really interesting framework for uh, inventing a fantasy world, I do find. An interesting quote from a scholar of esotericism um, by the name of Walter Hanningroff, and I'm probably saying that very, very incorrectly, is, and I'll say, quote, the New Age movement is the cultic milieu having become conscious of itself in the later 70s as consisting of a more or less unified movement. All manifestation of this movement are characterized by a popular Western cultural criticism expressed in terms of a secularized esotericism. Unpacking that quote is that what he's saying is that, hey, there was this movement. It became aware that it, it's its movement and implicit in it is a critique of the religious and cultural structures that you see in Western society. So what are some of these things that New Ageism is trying to repudiate or purge from society? One is violence. They stand starkly against violence. Every form of violence and any form corrupts the self. You, Because if everything is you and you have created the reality by perceiving it, when you do violence on someone else, you're only actually injuring yourself. Yeah. So it wants to purge violence out of society. Um, capitalism and in terms of the excesses of capitalism and greed and lust and power all of these things that we see in the Skeksis, that what they are is this empire that just gorges on everything that it can get, that will enslave, murder, and kill at will, are these things that are critiques of Western culture that are implicit in New Age philosophy. Now, whether or not New Age as a philosophical movement can hold up under scrutiny is an interesting question, and I would say many things don't. I personally find it very hard to believe that a interdimensional energy beam was talking to this Jane Roberts. I don't necessarily think that holds up under scrutiny in the way that I perceive the world. Sure. Do I know it to be true? Absolutely. That she was lying? No. Do I think that she believed what she was doing? Probably. But the point is that, hey, there are aspects of our own culture and civilization that are bad. And the New Age movement is responding to these bad things that I think are totally in lockstep with. And we see those evils, these horrible aspects of humanity, manifest in the villains of the Dark Crystal. I think that's a fascinating uh, way to read the Dark Crystal. And it amazes me, too, that a couple weeks ago we sat here and we discussed The NeverEnding Story, uh, which also came out in the 1980s, and also uh, in its source material, the book by Michael Enda, uh, interpreted some of this esoteric or New Age knowledge of anthroposophy or of the works of Aleister Crowley, and how the 1980s were such a unique cultural moment where you could introduce these ideas Uh, to mainstream media and entertainment and even package them for younger audiences as well. Uh, And people would accept them. Even if, you know, The Dark Crystal didn't do that well, the 1980s was really the only time that it could have gotten made. And I'm grateful for that because now we have this resurgence. Now we're able to revisit these pieces of, uh, of art and understand them and accept them because there is more acceptance for these ideas. Um, but it, it really does strike me as like kind of this lucky pocket of time where people were able to play with these ideas and storytelling. You know, that that's a really fa- fascinating point. And I'd like to expand on that a little bit. I think when it comes to entertainment and in particular entertainment from children, um, adults often wield way too much power. And what I mean by that is there's often this assumption that these movies could somehow damage a kid. You could imagine a group of Disney executives sitting around and someone coming in and pitching the dark crystal and being like, 
absolutely fucking not. No way. There's no way we're doing this. Right. And just like flat out, like hard no. And that movie just sitting on a shelf and never being released. But I saw this when I was a boy and yeah, some kids probably were a little frightened by it and had some bad dreams, but it didn't really damage anyone. And kids can handle so much more than people realize. You don't need to um, shelter them and nor do you need to like, um, you know, neglect them. But there's a balance that says, hey, you can understand this complex movie called The Dark Crystal on a very intuitive level because someone like Jim Henson, who's a master storyteller, poured his heart and soul into it. And it's not going to fuck people up. It's not satanic. It expresses some interesting ideas about the self and how to unify the self. And it has themes like imperial greed, genocide, a world out of harmony. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we have in the, the previous weeks uh, discussed fairy tales and there is a lengthy, like, centuries long history of young people and adults alike being initiated and being introduced to storytelling through these dark, uh, tales, whether they are cautionary tales or not. But, uh, I, I think there is a, a fear of introducing young people to darker material that, uh, is not necessarily that healthy. I think it is healthy for young people to be introduced to themes like those explored in The Dark Crystal. Um, I'd love to segue just a little bit because I think this is a good good place where we are discussing this idea that the film is really based upon, which is that all things are connected, that there is a power in recognizing all of yourself, in recognizing that all things are part of you or at least should be significant to you and connected to you, that also plays into why it is made in the medium that it is made. And that is the medium of puppetry. Let's talk puppets. Uh, this is really exciting for me because I have a background in puppetry. Um, I studied it for a couple of years. I won't claim to be an expert or a puppeteer by any means, but I have done a few shows with different techniques of puppetry, and I've studied it with some of the Uh, greatest puppeteers I have ever known uh, in the United States and uh, across the pond in the Czech Republic. Um, Puppetry is such an ancient art form that there are some people who believe that puppets were performing before actors were performing. Uh, And while we tend today to think of puppetry as a medium for children, as an entertainment style that is made just for children, uh, that's not really the case throughout much of its history. Puppetry dates back to at least 2000 BCE. So it is thousands of years old, and it is something that has been used uh, not only for entertainment, not only for drama, but in religious rites, like funerary rites or other sacred kinds of festivals. Can I ask a question? Yeah. When you say that, that that blew me away. I didn't know that fact, that it's yeah. as old as the 2000 BCE. Do you know geographically where puppetry came out of? Uh, most likely ancient Greece and ancient Egypt uh, are the first kind of recordings of puppetry that we know of. But almost every culture has a form of object manipulation or puppetry as performance. So it's hard for us to exactly say where it originated or how it spread. That just blew my, that I, yeah. so I'm the history guy. And in particular, I like to be, I'm knowledgeable about ancient history. That's my baby. And I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. So there are puppets found in tombs. There are puppets found in these, uh, you know, consecrated places in cultures across the world, in Africa, in Asia. And there are so many different techniques that it's almost hard to unify them and call them the same thing. But puppetry, if you ask a puppeteer, is the art of movement. Uh, It is a uh, it is a technique and it is a performance style where you manipulate an object as if it had life. And if you watch uh, any puppet performance, uh, depending on the style that you're watching, whether it's shadow puppetry or marionette or uh, any other style, uh, you're going to see a unification of performer and object. And I think this comes back to 
that just blew my mind. Yeah. I'm sorry. Keep, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah. Um, I have such a special love for puppetry. So this is, uh, is really great to talk about. So my background is in a Japanese style of puppetry called bunraku, where two or more puppeteers manipulate one puppet, where the puppeteers are clad head to toe in black, usually with a hood even covering the face, and maybe with a slit for the eyes so that you can see the puppet you're manipulating. But the puppeteer absolutely disappears, and the attention goes directly toward the object. It's amazing how just with the suggestion of the puppet, just with the suggestion that the puppet is the one who has the life, an audience will direct their attention toward that puppet, even if they can see a person clad in black behind them manipulating the movements. That's amazing. That reminds me in the Jim Henson documentary we watched, Jim Henson's sitting there holding Kermit the Frog. And he goes like, really, you know, Kermit's the interesting one. If I'm sitting here right. and I start making Kermit alive, no one will notice me. And then he starts Kermit doing the Kermit voice. And literally you just ignore Jim Henson and you just see Kermit and you see Kermit as a character that is fully a fleshed out self. And he breathes and he thinks. You can see the thinking behind his eyes, even though his eyes are plastic. And there is something that I think puppetry tells us about ourselves as audience members that I find just incredibly fascinating and beautiful, which is that just given that suggestion, just given the object, we can see life. We can see a person we can see someone who feels, someone who thinks, and we can interpret the slightest head tilt, the slightest gesture as uh, an incredible expression of emotion. And I think the Dark Crystal handles that really quite beautifully, even though it is unifying all of these uh, different techniques of puppetry. So the Skeksis are people in suits and there's somebody manipulating the mouths, uh, but there is an actual person in that suit doing the movements. The Gelfling are more traditional. There is a hand manipulating the mouth, and then there's somebody doing the arms probably on a wire, and they're underneath the puppet. And then there are a couple of scenes where you'll see them from far off, and there's definitely a person wearing a wig climbing like a mountain <laughs> trying to be the Gelfling. Uh, but there are so many different styles that are incorporated in this. Even the Podlings are more traditional Muppets. Uh, you know, if they have become their own puppetry term, but we believe them. We believe that they are alive. And we start to understand their motions, their manipulations, and their gestures. And that unification of puppeteer and puppet, I think, only serves to amplify this theme that the Dark Crystal is trying to uh, explain to us or is trying to communicate to us, which is that we are all one. We are all connected and we are all united by something. Oh, I love that. The idea that the puppeteer and the inanimate object combined to make a new separate form of life, yeah. though not biological life, another type of life, and that we see a movie about different types of life and disharmony needing to come back to unify by unifying a crystal, which is an inanimate object that doesn't give life except that it does. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, so this idea that there is this sort of, um, this, this duality between the puppeteer and the puppet that is manifested in the duality between the mystics and the Skeksis. And I keep saying it wrong and I'm just going to say it wrong. You're fine. Um, I think that is absolutely freaking brilliant. And it, you know, it brings me to one of my central questions of the movie that I think is interesting to explore. And I think it highlights the theme. So there's typical high fantasy, what they call high fantasy, whatever that term means, typical fantasy, right? Sure, yeah. The hero has to wield usually a sword or a magic weapon and kill the villain or the monster or what, or if it's Hercules, you know, killing the Hydra, whatever it is. The Dark Crystal is not that movie, right? It is not about the hero wielding a weapon to kill the enemy. Quite the opposite. No Gelfling ever inflicts harm to any of the Skeksis directly. So instead of about killing the villain, it is about healing the villain and bringing it into the whole. 
Because of that, I want to focus a little bit on the mystics. They don't have a huge plot uh, point in the movie, right? You see the mystics at the very beginning. You see their walk to the castle of the crystal and you see their reunification. That's about all we get. And we get to hear their chant like song. Why are the mystics themselves incomplete? I think it's an interesting question Yeah, because we often envision a monastic spiritual life as a whole incomplete unification with a divine being. And as inherently good, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. we see that in monks in the Middle Ages We um, that you know re- remove themselves from society and just focused on prayer. And from the Buddhist monk to the ancient and modern Indic Brahmin, there's this idea of purifying oneself from desire, focusing on spiritual and intellectual pursuits, focusing on being calm and quiet and uh, focusing on a lack of self and focusing on on studying the divine that we, we inherently see as holy. And we see the mystics representing this sort of monastic lifestyle. Why are they incomplete? Why are the mystics not able to get to their this point of energy beams on their own? Why do they need the Skekskis? The Skekskis. I can't say it. I think that is a really great question. And it's something I have thought about too with this idea of reunification with the Skeksis and the mystics. Because... Uh, the mystics aren't whole. The mystics aren't good. They aren't doing any good for this world by chanting or by doing rituals in their standing stones. They have withdrawn. They have not been able to heal the world on their own. And I think there's something even in the creature design that suggests this. They resemble dinosaurs, where the Skeksis resemble vultures and these sort of predatory uh, scavenger creatures. The mystics resemble dinosaurs dying out long since past. And there is something about their slowness and their inaction that is just as harmful as the Skeksis' negative action. And so only by uh, uh, unifying those two disparate ideals can you have uh, prosperous action or can you have good action. And I think that's a really valuable point that the movie is making, that when... (laughs) When halves are divided, it's not necessarily an all good and an all evil creature who result from it. There are good and evil in every uh, every action that we take. There is um, you know, there's a greater and more complex and more nuanced duality that it's trying to convey. Interesting thought. I I am inclined to agree with pretty much everything you said. When we look at the Skekskis, they are all ego. They are 100% driven by their impulses. They don't have any empathy. They don't care. They will consume every resource until it's gone. And uh, they're willing to enslave, maim, and destroy anything and everything that gets in the way of their own desires. When we look at the mystics, they have renunciated so much desire, they have renunciated so much ego that they are barely a self. All they are are slow-moving contemplation. And to heal a world that is dying, you do need action. Yeah. You do need some sense of self. So there is a balance between these two poles, the complete and total selfish ego-driven to the completely selfless uh, contemplation that represent the danger that Thra is in, that it, there does need to be some level of action. And when you bring them together, as when you bring the crystal together as one piece, finally, this world is able to heal. And finally, the Gelfling are able to return and take possession and cultivate and grow this beautiful world and respect it. That's perfect. I think there's no better example of this than that 
the Skeksis may be ego-driven and selfish, but they're efficient. Like they get it done and they pretty much can destroy a world in a very short amount of time. But the mystics, on the other hand, will wait until they're on their deathbed to tell the last Gelfling that there is a prophecy that he can heal the world. It's that tension between action and inaction, between efficiency and contemplation that needs to be reconciled. Yeah, and even the mystic as dying is just like, man... I really should have told you this a long time ago. Yeah, like I, I wasted was, my time. I was a little too patient. I could have actually helped you a lot more on this quest. Instead, I held it. I kept my own counsel and never told you that, by the way, the weight of the entire world is on your fucking shoulders, and Jen. And it's great that I was able to eke out these last couple of words before I died. Which gave you just enough to know where to walk. Yeah. That's it. By the way, hey, Jen... You got to save the world and you walk that way. <laughs> like what? Yeah. <laughs> Not cool. Absolutely. And um, I, I'd like to uh, talk about another thing that I, I meditate with this movie and I'd like to discuss it with you. I find it very interesting that the Skekskis use the language of empire. They have an emperor and the term is emperor. Now this term uh, goes back to, my wheelhouse, the Roman Empire. Yeah. Emperator is the Latin word that goes to emperor. Emperator means commander in chief. If you were the emperator of Rome, that meant that you had supreme control over the army. Now, when Augustus made himself the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, he took a few official titles and offices in order to consolidate and control the empire. The first was Imperator. He wanted to control the army. The army had to report directly back to him. And because he was the Imperator, eventually, as that commander of the army, as the army became, as Rome, pardon me, became a military autocracy where whoever ruled the army ruled the empire, that, ter- that name became synonymous with ruling. And one thing that Augustus did not do was take the title king or rex Mm, in Latin, because the Romans wouldn't have kings. But the army did need a leader, and that army, that leader was him. So not having a king, you had an emperor. Now, why do you think, and they use this specific term to describe the leader of the Skekskis, and not king, not lord, not duke, not count, it's emperor. I think it's a significant choice. I think so too. And based on the information that you've just given, my instinct is that it is a political choice in order to convince the world that they are a benevolent ruler, in order to convince Thra that they have Thra's best interest in mind. I'm not sure if that lines up with your idea, but... That's an interesting idea. And I threw that out to you, at you kind of in a Midnight Myth boomerang fashion. To me, it makes it Western. It is the Western world that has emperors, right? Like it is the Roman term, right? It's a term that, uh, that was so powerful. Other people have adopted it, but they used the term that was used for the ruler of Rome, right? It makes the authority sound ancient. Yeah. Right. That you're always been an emperor, right? And there needs to be one strong ruler of Thra and that is the emperor, And as well as it puts the Skeksky's power in terms of empire. And we are dealing with a world that is post-colonial empire in a world that looks at the, the idea of an empire and an emperor as fundamentally unfree and as fundamentally um, bad in terms of what empires did during the colonial empire phase of our history. And we look back at the ancient Roman empire as a cautionary tale of a republic that lost its freedom. So to me, it is a word that is symbolic with not free, with there was once freedom and now there is an empire. You know, the word king does not carry that same negative connotation. After all, we have kings and queens living today who aren't ruthless military dictators. Right. But every emperor was. 
<laughs> you know, every emperor was a ruthless military dictator. Emperors are bad, right? You are, don't want to be an empire and you don't want to be an emperor ruling an empire if you want people to be free. I think that's why they use the term emperor. I think that's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I just wanted to call that out. And I also wanted to talk about Rome. So that's why I. So know. I want to use that because I want to uh, revisit something else that I think is in conversation with ancient Rome within the Dark Crystal. And that's Agra. Let's talk about Agra. So let's talk about Agra, who is voiced by Frank Oz to great effect, who is known as a keeper of secrets uh, and who has, depending on how you look at it, one eye or three eyes, however you like to see that. Has uh, ram's horns. Has ram's horns, is an extraordinarily androgynous character, but is definitely coded as feminine, uh, I believe, uh, and and is a really, she plays a really interesting role within the Dark Crystal because she provides Jen with the shard, but she communicates the information of the prophecy. She communicates the information of the history of Thra with equivocation. She is not someone who is easy to interpret. She never gives you a straight answer necessarily. I think that Agra is in conversation with someone that we have discussed lightly before here on the podcast. But what's great about us republishing our uh, back catalog week by week is that we can go back and listen to these old episodes and hear uh, ourselves say, hey, let's make sure we do a podcast about this in the future. And uh, a few uh, a few years ago when we started this podcast, an early episode, we said, let's make sure someday on the podcast we revisit the ancient Greek character of Tiresias. And this is where I want to do that with Agra. So Let's to, do it. to begin with this, uh, Agra, the name, uh, sounds a lot like Augur, which was, uh, as I mentioned, Rome. It was the title of Roman seers or soothsayers who were masters of a form of uh, divining known as augury, which is where they would read the flight patterns of birds in order to divine the future. So there is a, uh, a, a connection to the sort of seers of the past of ancient Rome and of ancient Greece as taking the auspices. But it also, I, I think, interestingly, because the Skeksis are so bird-like, are so vulture-like, I think it also reminds us that Agra is just a little bit more powerful than them, that Agra is just a little bit more in tune with them than they might like to believe. I love that because a ancient auger interprets the flights of birds. The Skekskis are bird-like. Yeah. She's able to interpret them rather than them, you know, ruling her, even though they do destroy her observatory. Yes, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about Tiresias, this ancient Greek figure who was a blind prophet uh, who interpreted the will of Apollo, who's probably best known for his role in Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, uh, but shows up periodically throughout Greek mythology and Greek drama. But according to Pliny the Elder, he was the founder of augury, this form of taking the auspices off of the flight patterns of birds. I just... So, Love that you reference Pliny the Elder. Thank I, you. I try. So we've got a couple of references already between Agra and Tiresias. The first is augury, and the other is this uh, blindness. Even though she is not uh, totally blind, she is missing an eye, so we have this kind of relationship there. Tiresias has a really interesting uh, kind of origin story because Tiresias, as a young man... There's a story, there's a myth about him walking uh, through the forest one day, and he came across two snakes who were mating. And he was disturbed by this, so he struck the snakes with his staff. And this apparently angered Hera. So Hera came down, and as punishment for striking the snakes and stopping this sort of flow of nature, Hera transformed Tiresias into a woman. Tiresias went on to live a full and wonderful life as a woman. She got married, she had children, she raised children to also be seers, and had completely accepted 
this kind of spontaneous sex change that was brought on by the gods. And then one day she was walking and once again saw two snakes mating and she trampled on them. And then she was freed from this uh, punishment from Hera and transformed back into a man. And that's, as we know, Tiresias in the myths is usually after this transformation as an old man. So this is a character from Greek mythology who has lived this dual existence, who has lived as a man and has lived as a woman fully. Now his role in the Theban tragedies of Euripides and Sophocles, these really famous ancient Greek plays, is worth mentioning because he's the kind of seer who is connected to this land of Thebes. He warns the kings uh, who are there in the early days of the founding of Thebes that they have to maintain their uh, uh, sacrifices to Dionysus. This happens in Euripides' The Bacchia. Uh, and if they stop sacrificing to Dionysus, that the land of Thebes will fall to ruin. Of course, that happens. <laughs> Everything right. falls apart. And then in the plays of Sophocles about Oedipus, uh, Tiresias is the one who reveals all of Oedipus's crimes, that he has killed his father unwittingly and married his mother. There is this, uh, I think, spiritual connection of Tiresias to the land of Thebes, to the city of Thebes, but also this sense that although he is extraordinarily powerful, although he's probably more powerful than anyone else in Thebes, he can't directly influence its outcome. He has to just whisper in the ears of kings. He has to be there to suggest with equivocation. He has to deliver prophecy and auspice as generally or as vaguely as he possibly can and can't ever give anyone a straight answer. But he has this great power and this great connection to the land. And Agra in my reading of her, is the same thing for Thra. She is so connected to the land. She is the embodiment of Thra, and yet she can't save it. She can't put the shard back in the crystal. She just has to hold the shard until she can give enough clues to a Gelfling to make it happen. She doesn't even know which shard is the actual shard. Exactly. And if she did, she probably couldn't say. You know, so she presents Jen, Jen, pardon me, with tons of shards, not tons, like a handful of shards, and it's up to him to choose and choose which one. And if he chooses the wrong one, then uh, he will not be able to heal the dark crystal and turn it back to the crystal of truth and save Thra and unite the mystics and the Skekskis. And implicit in a character like Tiresias, um, and in a character like Agra, is that their function in the story is to give just enough information, right? but not too much. Not too much. Part of Jen's journey to healing the crystal is that he has to, A, figure this, this out, figure out this puzzle and how to do it, and then B, summon the courage to get there. And along the way, he's going to meet people that are going to help him. So the mystic who dies is the one that sets him on the journey. He's the one that says, you need to go on this adventure. Augur is the one that gives him vital information and vital clues and the, the ultimate piece that he needs to complete this, this adventure. And then Kira is the one that actually has to go and help get him there physically, is the one that's like, he couldn't make it there without her. She's his wings. Absolutely, literally yeah. and metaphorically. And Tiresias, in a very similar note, and how he is evoked in, in particular in the tragedies that you spoke, his job is to give enough information to tell the audience there's something rotten in Denmark. Yeah. He tells Oedipus, I may be blind, but or, I'm sorry, you may see me as blind, but I see, and you, Oedipus, are the blind one because Oedipus doesn't know what's going on. And that tells us, the audience, there's something wrong with Oedipus. If the prophet is giving this riddle that uh, Oedipus, who is known for solving riddles, can't figure out, then what's really happening here? And so I think Agra has a very Tiresian vibe. She also reminds me of the uh, the crones of Perseus who share an eye. Absolutely. That give yeah, Perseus, like the fates. Yeah. yeah, that give Perseus... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, the fates, who give uh, Perseus the knowledge he needs of where Medusa is. 
you know, and so he must see them. And how does he, how does he accomplish this? Perseus steals their one eye that they share and they say, okay, this is where Medusa is. And Agra, who can remove her eye and move it around to see things. So Agra, though blinded in one eye, can see better than anyone because her eye is not limited to the face. Her yeah. eye can literally move around. And she has this kind of uh, stunted horn slash third eye thing in the middle of her head that we imagine is able to see a higher form of truth than just visible light. And also we see in her, when you go, when we first see her, we see the observatory. We see that she has studied the stars. So that evokes two things. One, it evokes astrology and two, it evokes astronomy. Mm-hmm. Two intimately linked disciplines that we don't wouldn't have the science of astronomy without astrology. Correct. This idea that you can interpret the heavens and by interpreting the heavens, learn about ourselves, which is philosophically at its core level still true with astronomy, even though we now know that what the position of a star is not going to determine my fate. Right. Like very few people literally believe. Right. Like because the star is here at this time, that means today will be a good day or a bad day. However, studying and trying to interpret the patterns of the heavens was instrumental in us learning about the universe, which then helps us learn about ourselves. Because after all, we are part of the universe. Yeah. Ourselves are fundamentally linked to the universe and the universe is in us as much as we are in it. And Agra has this air of both a ancient seer, an ancient astrologer, plus a scientist, that these things are not uh, exclusive as we look at them now. Us postmodernists say that, you know, like, there is a difference between someone who tells the future and someone who studies the heavens analytically. Well, to her, those things are one. Right. Yeah. And her job is to then help Jen get to the point where he can heal the crystal. It's wonderful. I, I, I think what this really serves to tell us about the movie, about the dark crystal, is that, yes, Jim Henson had this inspiration from New Age philosophy, from the Roman Empire, from Greek tragedy and drama, and used the medium of puppetry to expand his own horizons of what he could do in terms of storytelling. But at the end of the day, he created something that was so new, that was so unique and so special and so singular that I can't think of anything else that is truly like it. And it's a really an embarrassment of riches for us on the podcast because we can explore all of these threads in terms of the themes, in terms of the philosophies, in terms of the mythologies, but it really is something unlike anything else in the world. I'd say drop the mic, but they're on stands. Aww. Any final thoughts? Um, just that I have really enjoyed uh, this conversation. I am so glad that we were able to uh, dig into how the themes of this movie and the medium of puppetry uh, worked so well in concert with each other. I'm so uh, happy to have been able to share my love of puppetry with the world through this podcast, and I would love to do more Jim Henson in the future, whether we want to discuss any Muppet movies or we want to talk about the labyrinth at some point, but uh, let us know what you want to hear and let us know your thoughts. And, you know, we got through this without mentioning the show once, which is awesome because, you know, friends of the pod out there listening, if you want more Dark Crystal, there are 10 episodes on Netflix. We can certainly give you more. So let us know if you like this and we can talk more Dark Crystal. Yeah. Age of Resistance. Because the Age of Resistance was just a pure delight. It's so good. It's so, so good. And until next time, everyone. Be kind. Be kind. Bum, 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 bum. Dark crystal. Bum. Mm.
peace, yes, mm. peace with the gelflings, peace. No, I'm friend, I'm friend. I am still emperor. You must find the shard. <laughs> We're awesome. <laughs>